Hello, this is David Beeson welcoming you to Chapter 53 of A History of England. This is the second of two episodes devoted to Two Young Men Unleashed. The first was for James, this one's for Robert. A cot for a child, a punch for a party, a cheroot for a smoke. All fine English words, you might think. But in fact, they're among the scores of words derived from Indian languages. Britain's long association with India has left a mark on English culture so deep, most of us don't even know that's where it comes from. Before he became the first Prime Minister of an independent India, Jawaharlal Nehru was frequently a guest of the British King, an involuntary guest. On the last of the nine occasions that this happened, he took advantage of his five months of enforced leisure to write a book, Discovery of India. In it, he reserves his most passionate anger for the behaviour of the East India Company. You'll remember that this was a private company run on behalf of its shareholders, founded in the time of Elizabeth I. It ruled British India for nearly a century before the British Empire took over officially. Nehru comments on another Indian word to have made its way into English. It is significant, he writes, that one of the Hindustani words which has become part of the English language is loot. I think that's a great story, which I came across in Nick Robbins's highly readable account of the East India Company, the corporation that changed the world. But now it's time to move on and meet the hero of this episode, Robert Clive. Like James Wolfe, he was the son of minor English gentry. The family had held property and played an honourable but hardly prominent role in politics for generations. An ancestor had served in the Long Parliament during the Civil Wars. Clive's father had even been a Member of Parliament himself. The family wasn't, however, wealthy. It may have been lack of money that led to Clive, as a toddler, living with his aunt's family. Her husband described him as out of measure addicted to fighting. As well as his keenness on fighting, he also displayed remarkable physical courage, terrifying onlookers by climbing the tower of the church in Market Drayton, where he lived. Later, he established a protection racket with some fellow adolescents in that same provincial town. They would vandalise shops if the owners didn't buy them off. Constantly in trouble, he had to change schools twice. He emerged with no qualifications. Undereducated with a propensity to violence and even criminality, you won't be surprised to learn that he didn't choose a career that would have led to his becoming a judge or a bishop. Instead, Clive's father had sufficient connections to pull some strings and provide him with a modest start in life in a clerking position in the East India Company. At that time, the company had established a profitable and growing business in the Indian subcontinent. It had no presence in the hinterland, but just a string of small trading posts along the coast through which to ply its trade. These were scattered strategically around the landmass, the most notable at Bombay, present-day Mumbai, in the west, Madras, Chennai, in the southeast, and Calcutta, Kolkata, in the northeast. These were still small settlements, though they were financially significant. Much of the subcontinent was at that time controlled by the Mughal Empire. 
It, however, had fallen on hard times and was beginning to crack up under its internal tensions. That was a set of circumstances the East India Company had to begin to respond to. A man with a highly developed potential for violence and a track record of using it for financial gain was going to fit right into that setting. Just as brutal power was essential to the British presence in the Caribbean, whether it was fighting the French or Spanish or brutalising slaves, so it was vital to ensuring the company's fortunes in India, though in a different way. In India, the company didn't set out to enslave the local population, merely to profit from it commercially. Some Indians, though, were not inclined to accept the company's presence as wholly beneficial, and might even go so far as to offer it armed resistance. The company invested a portion of its profits in buying itself the support of local rulers, and, in case that failed, another portion in military force. Nor were insubordinate natives the only candidates for rough treatment. In Clive's day, there was also a serious European rival to its commercial power in the Indian subcontinent. It should come as no surprise that this was Britain's perennial enemy, as much in Europe or North America as in India, the French. France had nationalised its equivalent of the East India Company, so it was using official French troops there. The East India Company, on the other hand, recruited soldiers itself. Many of the officers were seconded from the British Army, as were some of its soldiers, though a great many of those were Indian. But the key was that they worked for a private company, not for the British state. Into this curious environment arrived Clive. His first appointment was as an assistant bookkeeper at the company station Madras. However, in 1746, as the War of Austrian Succession was raging in Europe, French forces occupied the town and took senior company staff prisoner. Others were offered their freedom in return for their word to take no action against their new overlords. Clive was one of a minority who refused to take the oath. They were held in relatively easy captivity, but only four escaped, with Clive one of them. He reached another company post and asked for a transfer to the army. That was granted, even though the company viewed it as a step down in his career, since it regarded its soldiers as inferior to its civilian staff, even though it ultimately depended on them. In his case, however, far from holding him back, the move launched Clive's career. He displayed remarkable courage in battle and soon won a commission as an officer. That in turn gave him the opportunity to demonstrate another quality, his capacity for leadership. One eyewitness described his platoon firing with courage and great vivacity upon the enemy, as a result of being animated by his exhortation. At the end of the War of Austrian Succession, you may remember that Madras was handed back to Britain under the terms of the peace in exchange for the French fort at Louisbourg in Canada. Clive moved back. Although there was peace in Europe, the decline of the Mughal Empire led to plenty of continued fighting in India as local potentates vied for power. The East India Company joined in these games with gusto, recruiting and buying itself allies as it felt best served its interests. As a quick reminder, that's the interests of the shareholders. Such interests might match those of Britain or its empire, but they didn't have to. 
and if they didn't, it was the shareholders' concerns that had priority. Clive once more showed his military qualities at the siege of a native fort at Tanjavul. Surrounded by enemy cavalry, he held a key piece of ground with 30 men for just long enough for reinforcements to reach him and help win the day. His physical resilience emerged when, now commissioned as a captain, he led a mission against another Indian fort, which he captured by dint of forced marches through torrential rain. The defenders, shocked at his approach, simply slunk away. He then held the place against a counter-siege by superior forces. By that time, Clive had won renown back in England, where William Pitt described this soldier with no military background as a heaven-born general. Meanwhile, in Bengal, in northeastern India, a new Nawab, ruler, decided it was time to rise against these foreign intruders and seize the company station at Calcutta. That represented losses of some £2 million, or £300 million in today's terms, to the investors of the East India Company. That was quite enough to make the company take military action. Besides, though it was obviously far less significant in corporate terms than a financial loss, 64 British prisoners were placed in a stifling punishment cell that came to be known as the Black Hole of Calcutta, where 43 of them died. Clive, now a lieutenant colonel, was sent to recapture Calcutta. That he duly did. The Nawab did, however, counterattack, and Clive added further to his glory when he marched his relatively small force right through the enemy camp, being fired on the whole way in what came to be known as the Calcutta Gauntlet. This action cost him 10% of his men, but enabled him to relieve a beleaguered company garrison. When the Seven Years' War broke out, Clive's campaigning in India became part of that worldwide conflict. France lent support to the Nawab's resistance. The joint Bengali and French force took Clive on at the Battle of Plassey, and they lost. This came to be seen as Clive's greatest victory. Indeed, when Britain ennobled him, he took the title Baron Clive of Plassey. That's ironic. There was, in fact, hardly any fighting at Plassey. In what there was, Clive was helped by some luck, in particular the fact that his enemies hadn't protected their gunpowder well from a rainstorm, so their cannon, manned by French artillerymen, had only limited effect. The main ingredient of his triumph, however, had been financial. The company's wealth had grown immensely, thanks in particular to tribute from local rulers who had thrown in their lot with it, or been beaten in earlier victories, many of which Clive had contributed to. That increased the scope for another form of warfare in which Clive again excelled, the use of money to buy enemies and turn them into friends. It's particularly neat if the money you use for that purpose has been raised from the compatriots of those enemies through tribute or taxation. He bought off two of the leading supporters of the Nawab, one of whom simply led a large part of the forces opposing Clive off the field, making his victory over the remnants certain and comprehensive. Do you remember the boy Robert climbing the church tower at Market Drayton and then running a protection racket on the ground? It's hard not to feel that his early display of courage, strength and an openness to corrupt behaviour prefigured just the qualities necessary for a victory such as Plassey. 
In any case, what's sure is that by the end of the Seven Years' War, the East India Company was a dominant force on the Indian subcontinent. In the same way as in Canada, French power had been broken. What's still more important is that the Indian forces opposing the company had been cowed, or soon would be. Plassey in 1757, early in the war, hadn't proved decisive, whatever the Clive legend might suggest. Final settlement came in the year after the end of the international conflict in 1764. It wasn't Clive, but another general, Hector Munro, who defeated the Indian forces of the Nawab in the far more closely fought Battle of Buxar. Or rather, since nearly 90% of Munro's troops were Indian, his Indian forces defeated those of the Nawab. But if Munro won the battle, Clive certainly won the war. Unlike James Wolfe, whose victory in Canada cost him his life, Clive survived his war and came home with a fortune. He left India with some £90 million in capital, in today's money, and about £8 million a year in income, which most people would find it reasonably easy to live on. That was a tiny proportion of the total the East India Company was now sucking out of its Indian possessions. And they were indeed possessions now. Long gone was the time of the ring of little trading stations around the subcontinent. The company had received Mughal grants of power, including to collect tax, to huge swaths of India, including the richest region, Bengal. And, faithful to its mission to maximise shareholder value with any other concerns secondary, it took full advantage of that power to extract what it could. The effect was massive. When the monsoon failed in 1769, just five years after the Battle of Buxar that decided the fate of Bengal, the company's looting of the region had left it without the resources to fend off famine. The company itself offered no relief. Figures aren't easy to establish, but recent scholars suggest there were one to two million deaths. This wasn't all down to Clive, but it's what you might expect from an imperial undertaking driven by hardened fortune-hunting adventurers such as the Spanish conquistadors, or Robert Clive. Still, what's certain is that between Wolfe in Canada, Clive in India, the Prussians in Europe, and the Royal Navy at sea, Britain had been catapulted into a new status by the Seven Years' War. It was now a major world power. That, you'll remember, was a process that had been kicked off by William Pitt the Elder. Next time, we'll find out how his extraordinary success was rewarded by his being removed from office. Many thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>